Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Jess Armine at the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in Southeast Pennsylvania, finding answers through genetics and integrative medicine. Welcome, everyone, tonight. I am very excited about this subject. Our subject matter is Why Can't I Sleep? Insomnia, the Scourge of the 21st Century. If you have not gotten the PDF for tonight's um, show, uh, go to my website, www.drjessarmine.com, click on the radio show, and on the top right-hand side will be a little man in front of an easel. Right beneath, right beneath that will be, in blue lettering, the um, PDF for this show. Just click it, and it will download for you. I just tried it a couple times myself, so I know the link is working. While people are getting uh, the PDF, I will regale you with some news. Um, we have been uh, working diligently about on the certification course in bioindividualized medicine that will be geared towards uh, healthcare practitioners so they can learn and do what it is Sean and I do, and um, Dr. Ben and so forth. But we are toying with an idea, and I'd like some feedback on this, of opening the course or having a separate course that's not as technical but very informative for lay people. And uh, that course wouldn't that course would not cost would be a fraction of the cost um, for a, uh, a healthcare provider. So uh, if I could get some feedback on that, I, if you guys would really like to know more about bioindividualized medicine and how we look at cases and how we uh, solve different things. Um, I would be happy to um, include that in my activities in my spare time. And then, of course, you would say, what spare time does he have? Because I don't have any. <clears throat> it's true. Ask my cat. He's very upset with me. So how about we dive in slowly but surely, and let's define insomnia. Um, according to the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, Insomnia has been thought of both as a symptom and a sign. But for right now, we'll use this, com- we'll use this diagnostic criteria for insomnia. Difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or non-restorative sleep, waking up tired. Uh, this, is, this difficulty would be present despite adequate opportunity and circumstance to sleep, and that's important. This impairment in sleep is associated with daytime impairment or distress, If you're walking through the day like a zombie, you have the problem. And it occurs at least three times a week and has been a problem for at least a month. I don't think there's a person out there that hasn't had some transient insomnia at some time. But the clinical insomnia is kind of ongoing. According to the um, 1991 National Sleep Foundation survey, the total prevalence of insomnia is around 30 to 48% of everybody. I kind of think it's a bit higher than that. And um, again, they talked about the symptoms of insomnia, difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, waking up too early, and in some cases, non-restorative or poor quality of sleep. You know, insomnia is not just a problem of whether you can sleep or not. There's a lot of consequences to not being able to sleep. 
In women, insomnia is more prevalent in, at both the onset of menses and menopause, according to the DSM-4. And there are a ton of comorbid medical disorders. The word comorbid means that associated medical disorders. <clears throat> the fancy word is comorbidity. These, two, these include psychiatric disorders, working night or rotating shifts, will represent a significant risk for insomnia. And I can attest to that because I worked nights for a lot of years. And believe me, it messed with you. It messed with you. Um, realizing that those things by themselves don't cause insomnia but are precipita precipitants of insomnia in individuals who are predisposed to this, this disorder. In fact, chronic illnesses are a significant risk for insomnia. It's estimated that the majority of the people with insomnia, almost 90%, have an increased risk of getting these comorbid medical disorders such as conditions causing hypoxemia, sleep apnea, and dyspnea, difficulty breathing, gastrointestinal problems, pain conditions, and neurodegenerative diseases. These mess with the circadian rhythm, okay? A lot of times you can, this is the cause of restless leg syndrome periodic limb movement disorder. You notice how the medical guys just have a name for everything. They don't have a cure, <clears throat> but they've got a name for everything. And sleep-related breathing disorders, snoring, sleep apnea, and so forth. Okay. Also, and this is very, very important, that the most common comorbidity associated with insomnia are psychiatric disorders. About 40% of all insomnia patients have a coexistent psych psychiatric condition, depression being the most common. Makes you wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg, whether it was the depression and the insomnia or did the insomnia precipitate the depression. My sainted Nana was a very wise woman, and she said, if you poop and you sleep, everything will be okay. But what causes insomnia? Before we dive into the sleep-wake cycle, which is a little complicated, <clears throat> let me put it to you. Uh, I'm about... I'm, 57 years old, and I remember when I was a kid, the only things that were open on Sunday were the bakery and church, and there were no convenience stores that were open 24-7. Uh, the TV had a few channels, but it just simply turned off at midnight. They just stopped programming, okay, and most people didn't stay up all night. Most people weren't stimulated like that. Sundays were a day of rest. Okay, you hung out, you did things, but it was a down day. I'm kind of thinking, and I hope a lot of you agree with me, that our 24-7, 365 society, where everything is staring at us, all the bright lights and all the electromagnetic forces and just everything stimulating us is one of the major reasons for insomnia and one of the major reasons that we have an awful lot of other problems. So to get a little bit more technical, let's look at the sleep-wake cycle. It's not as daunting as it looks. Okay, it's on page 7. Uh, let me work it with you very, very simply. <clears throat> the eyeball on the upper left-hand side represents your eyes. And sleep-wake is dependent on light. So this is supposed to be when it gets dark out. Okay, the glutamate that would normally stimulate the suprachiasmic nucleus there, the SCN, slows down and melatonin is released from the pineal gland. And that sort of initiates sleep. Just follow the thick red line. 
So think of melatonin as initiating sleep, and GABA and 5-HT, which is serotonin, continue the sleep. And it's not important that you know which parts of these brain, which part of the brain, these things are talking about. It's very important that you realize that melatonin, which is a byproduct of serotonin metabolism, GABA, which is the major relaxing neurotransmitter, and serotonin, another major inhibitory neurotransmitter, are the things that keep you asleep and allow you to have restoration of your body. Remember, you don't sleep, you don't heal. Simple as that. You don't sleep, you don't heal. On page 8, light, like I just said, drives the sleep-wake cycle. So <clears throat> I read a lot of neurotransmitter tests. A, um, a patient of mine several months ago, uh, I was reading her neurotransmitter test, and I kind of told her her entire life story based on that test. And she said, I know who you are. And I said, who? The neurotransmitter whisperer. And uh, the name stuck, and she was absolutely right, because I can, I can glean a lot from them. But if you've ever seen a cortisol curve, okay, the uh, saliva tests that are taken four times a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one late afternoon, and one before bed, what you should see is the highest amount of cortisol in the morning and a steady drop in cortisol to the evening and nighttime, and that should be how your energy is. Your energy should be most in the morning and then flag a little bit, as after dinner and, you know, just calming down and then going, you know, doing whatever you have to do and then go to bed. But in this world, we have a lot of stimulation. And those stimulate, that, those stimuli, those stimulate, well, whatever the plural is, okay, are things like video games, large screen TVs, computer spe- uh, screens, a lot of electromagnetic fields that constantly stimulate us. And if you look at the sleep-wake cycle, it's run by light. So if you have a video game staring at you in the eyeballs, your brain thinks it's daytime and will keep pumping out cortisol to keep you awake. And I often see a reverse cortisol pattern where the highest is in the evening. So it actually crashes about 3.30 the person wakes up tired and they have a low cortisol. They kind of, you know, bounce around throughout the day at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Their low cortisol meets the normal curve. And then the cortisol starts rising and that person can't get to sleep. So it's an actual reverse curve of what I like to call a vampire pattern. And you've got to watch out for your words, people. I was explaining this to a dad one day about his son. And I said, yeah, he's got the vampire pattern. And out from behind him came a six-year-old boy with big eyes, pasty white. I said, what's wrong with you, boy? He said, you said my brother's a vampire! And I'm like, yes, I think I'd better be careful about my words because um, that poor boy probably hasn't slept since that time. So too much light affects our natural circadian rhythm and raises cortisol as well as upregulates glutamate. And, of course, you can see it here. The only population that does not have insomnia are the Amish. Because they wake with the sun and they go to sleep with the night. We're always talking about root causes of insomnia or root causes of anything. So I got this um, 
this panel from the Neuroscience Corporation, and uh, sleep difficulties can be caused by one or more of these things. Cortisol signal imbalance, too much cortisol. Melatonin signal imbalance, too little melatonin. Epinephrine, too much, it's excitatory. Norepinephrine, again, excitatory. And epinephrine, norepinephrine is from the adrenals. So if something's pressing on your adrenals, okay, and making them work, you're not gonna, you're not gonna find it easy to go to sleep. Dopamine, too much, okay, can cause paranoia and sometimes hallucinations. Serotonin, if it's too low, you're not gonna have the inhibition and you're not gonna produce um, melatonin. Glycine. GABA, as we spoke about before, you need GABA to relax, and you can see how important it is in the sleep-wake cycle. Glutamate, which is an extremely toxic excitatory neurotransmitter, okay, when we're producing too much of it, will irritate us and wake us up. Phenylethylamine, which is very important for focus, but if you have too much of it towards the end of the day, you're not going to be able to sleep. And histamine. How many people take antihistamines to try and sleep? Well, if it works very well for you, it should be a signal that you're having histamine problems, which is a lot of allergies. Now, of course, we're genetic guys, so I like to talk about the possible genetic predispositions. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we have uh, COMT, which also is known as catechol-O-methyltransferase. But I like catechol-O-methyltransferase, uh, the Irish, the, the Irish, the, I can't do it tonight, the Irish gene. Okay, I was going to do a nice Irish accent for you, and um, it, it isn't working. But anyway, I just thought it would be cute if I made it into an Irish um, neuro, not a neurotransmitter, but an Irish gene. Oh, well, joke didn't work, but COMT prevents the breakdown of dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which are the excitatory neurotransmitters. And if you have them built up, you may not be able to sleep. And let us not forget MAO which um, is the warrior gene. And if anybody doesn't recognize a Klingon warrior, I pity your soul because they don't have a sense of humor when it concerns that. But remember, MAO also breaks down the excitatory neurotransmitters. And if you have polymorphisms in COMT and MAO, that could be a good reason why you upregulate or why you can't let go of anger very easily. So COMT and MAO, these genes, like I said, cause upregulation of the catecholamines. Catecholamines are the excitatory neurotransmitters, thereby not allowing the body to relax and sleep. Now, here's the mistake that most people make. They go to treat the SNPs directly. And I hope over the past few shows, we're giving you the impression, the knowledge that that is not the proper way to treat the body. You were born with the polymorphisms. It's just a matter of what makes them express. So since you can't change your genes, what you should do is go after whatever is upregulating the excitatory neurotransmitters. But it is safe to use GABA, okay, to counterbalance, and you need to use a phenylated GABA because the regular GABA is on the market. Don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Phenylated GABAs are, th are products like Cavanase from the Neuroscience Corporation, Phenotropic from Biotics, or uh, GABA-centered PX by Poliquin. They have the proper molecule. And while I'm on the subject, and I want you to write this down, be careful of the other phenobutes. Um, 
cavernes and, and phenotropic and so forth, they're called phenobute. Those molecules are different from the other phenobutes on the market where you, if you've been reading, those are the ones who've had the problems. Okay, I've never had any problems with the cavernase or the phenotropic or uh, gabacentered PX because they have a very specific molecule that works very, very, very well. And you guys know me. I don't have an ax to grind with vitamins. I don't have my own vitamin line, although I've been thinking about it. <laughs> okay, but so I, I do the research to make sure that when I recommend something to you all, oh, my God, I said that like it was from the South, to all of you, okay, that you get uh, the best, the safest, and the best researched. Okay, here's something real important on page 13. Okay, this was a study that was done by the Neuroscience Corporation several years ago, and what they studied were, for, actually it was six at the time, but they, they just made it so you could fit on the screen here, uh, four subjects who had insomnia. These are people who had difficulty getting to sleep and or staying asleep. And they did the neurotransmitter test at the time they had the most problems. And I'm going to go through them with you because I want to let you know that insomnia doesn't have a cause. It is, again, a spectrum disorder. It can have many causes. So on the left-hand side, you see the particular neurotransmitter. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, 5-HT is serotonin. Glycine, which is inhibitory, GABA, which is inhibitory, glutamate, which is excitatory, phenylethylamine, HA is histamine, cortisol, and melatonin. The numbers uh, on the second column are the optimal numbers. Okay, I think. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The optimal numbers. And the subjects are subject one, two, three, and four. Now, subject number one has very high epinephrine, norepinephrine, very low GABA, okay, and very high cortisol for that time of night. So this particular person has adrenal upregulation for whatever reason, and that's the reason they can't sleep. Subject number two has very, very little GABA and a lot of phenylethylamine. Okay, so that excitation is keeping that person awake, and it would be treated differently than subject number one. Subject number three has very low serotonin and thereby very low melatonin. This person can't get to sleep and can't maintain their sleep. Well, guess what? This would be real easy to fix, okay? And I wish I got somebody with just one problem, okay? But that is an indicator that that is just the one problem. This is not an adrenal problem. This may be the fact that they're just not getting enough precursor to serotonin. And... Subject number four has high glycine and high glutamate, the glutamate being the most important, and that is good enough to keep you awake. And this, uh, they tell you that nighttime mind racing may be due to elevated PEA levels. Um, I, I always kind of shy people away from these little boxes on the side because when you have an imbalance between inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters, it can reflect in a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. How does one diagnose insomnia? And history, history, history. Sort of like the real estate agents. Location, location, location. History. If you listen to your patient, they will tell you what's wrong. I know it's like you hear me say it every week. It must be true if I keep saying it. If you listen to your patient, they'll tell you what's wrong. Okay. 
It's vitally important, people, to, that your healthcare provider discovers the root cause for your insomnia. Now, like I've been telling you, there's certain things you can self-treat reasonably. You can try a couple of safe things. But if you're having chronic insomnia, this is something where a learned individual really should weigh in on it, okay, because there's too many things that can cause insomnia. Otherwise, and if your healthcare provider doesn't want to do the proper workup, which I'm just about to get into, okay, the only thing you're going to get is Band-Aid treatment, and that's going to cause more serious problems to occur. And I enjoin all of you to pay really close attention right now. What's Band-Aid treatment? Think treatments that don't fix the problem but over, only cover it up. You've heard me say before that a Band-Aid, there's no dishonor in using a Band-Aid if you're bleeding, as long as you go and try and stop the bleeding. Most sleep medicines have been, were created, and if you read about them, they're only supposed to be used for about two weeks. How many people do you know that are on Ambien or Lunesta on a consistent basis? Okay, well, let me tell you why that's bad. Look, from the medical news today, okay, I have all the references here for you, um, reported by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the number of people taking Ambien and ending up in hospital emergency departments increased by nearly 220% between 2005 and 2010. That means from 6,111 to 19,487 visits. And this is visits to the emergency room. This does not include people waking up, doing stuff in the house, cooking, okay, getting in their car, driving, finding themselves somewhere they don't know how they got there. These are sedative hypnotics. It's not the sedative portion. It's the hypnotic portion, okay? And besides, they don't even provide proper sleep. And long-term use can be quite dangerous, especially in the elderly. How many people walking down the stairs that are going to slip? Okay, fall down the stairs. Those aren't included in these statistics. According to um, RxList, which is, you know, one of the Internet places you can go to find side effects, the benzodiazepines, Valium, Ativan, Xanax, and so forth, which are often used uh, for sleep, uh, have side effects of drowsiness, dizziness, loss of coordination, headache, nausea, blurred vision, change in sexual interest slash ability, constipation, heartburn, change in appetite, okay? And let me tell you a little secret. The benzos shoot up GABA, okay? You keep doing that. That sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? You keep doing that. What you don't realize is that you're counterbalancing dopamine. Now, dopamine high is nasty. Dopamine normal is your feel-good neurotransmitter. Low dopamine can cause something called anhedonia, which is a lack of joy. It looks just like depression, but it's a complete lack of joy. You just don't care anymore. <clears throat> and how is it treated? With antidepressants that are trying to bring up serotonin, which is the exact wrong target. So too much GABA on a, over a long period of time will knock down your dopamine and actually give you what looks like a depressive disorder. And you know something? Some of the natural substances aren't as, you know, aren't as safe melatonin, which a lot of people take, and in prodigious quantities to try and sleep. Well, let me tell you a little secret. Melatonin can give you daytime sleepiness, dizziness, headaches, uh, sometimes abdominal discomfort, discomfort, mild anxiety, irritability, confusion, 
short-lasting feelings of depression. Well, guys, your body, when it produces melatonin to initiate sleep, it doesn't produce 6 milligrams or 8 milligrams. It, it produces a little bit, okay, because all you need is that let's shut things off. So maybe you get the idea now that finding the root cause is real important and then correcting the downstream effect. I'm always talking about that. Correct, find the root cause, but you've got to correct the downstream effect also. So again, history. Diagnosis is history. Physical examination for disease processes. There are tons of diseases that insomnia is a feature of, okay? Anybody want to guess? I wish I had, you guys are all here so you could just scream it out, right? Thyroid disease, okay? Hormonal imbalances, diabetes, okay? Need I go on? There's loads of diseases that insomnia is a feature of, okay? And what has to be done? First, there should be at least a laboratory. If, if insomnia is identified, according to the criteria we spoke of before, your healthcare provider should be doing at least laboratory assessments for the most common imbalances, okay? Diabetes, thyroid, hormonal, immune, chronic infections, and so forth. Uh, there are urine neurotransmitter and saliva neurohormone assessments for adrenal function and neurotransmitter imbalance. You've heard me speak of them. Okay. Assessment of the GI tract for leaky gut syndrome and dysbiosis. Well, guess what? If you have a rotten gut, ooh, that sounds rock gut? No. If you have a leaky gut, okay, you're going to have a lot of immune upregulation with everything that you eat. That equals a lot of histamine. That equals a lot of excitation in that system. You might not be able to sleep. And, of course, a review of the epigenetics for possible biochemical pathways anomal pathway anomalies. It's always, always helpful to get an idea of where things can crash. You know, I'm talking awful fast. <laughs> I hope I'm not losing anyone. Okay? Um, so... Think about it. If you have insomnia or if a loved one has insomnia, what kind of workup, if any, has been done? It's vitally important. If they've been given Ambien or Lodester and on a regular basis, okay, they may look like they're sleeping, but is something else going on? If you've cleared out everything, then believe it or not, Natural remedies, if you know which ones to use and how to use them, and there's more than what I've written here, are really appropriate and, and work very well. But treatment is going to be wholly dependent on what you find wrong. Really, it never hurts to follow Brother Occam's razor from the 14th century. Does anybody remember who Brother Occam is? Had a uh, philosophy that essentially said, and I can't pronounce this, and Tia non stunt. Moplicanda, I don't know, preter necessitat. Hmm. That's supposed to be Latin, I guess. Anyway, when you have two competing theories that make, that make exactly the same predictions, the simpler one is the better. Brother Occam was really big on saying the simplest reason is usually the one. And in our day and age of specialization, I talk to people several times a day, and they're going all over the place with all these esoteric you know, constructs, and I'm saying, well, how about we get back to basics and give your body what it needs to heal? And it's like, it's like news. And it's not news to them. It's news to their practitioners. Like, okay, how about you give the person back their ability to heal by 
healing their cell walls, <laughs> phospholipids, you know, giving them a lot of vitamin C. I mean, these things are known to everyone, but everybody wants to go to the esoteric. Sometimes going back to basics is good. So what's the real basics for insomnia? Good sleep hygiene. I know it sounds boring, but we should go over it because it's that important. Okay? These are some suggestions from the National Sleep Foundation. Avoid napping during the day because it can uh, disturb the normal pattern of sleep and wakefulness. For some people, it's a problem. For some people, it's a necessity napping. Avoid stimulants such as caffeine, nicotine, alcohol too close to bedtime. Okay, well, alcohol will put you to sleep. But as it metabolizes from ethanol to ethyl aldehyde to ethacrinic acid and to carbon dioxide and water, lots of times it gets stuck in the aldehyde stage. Anybody who's been my patient, we're always talking about aldehydes and the NAT2s and so forth. But remember, the aldehyde from alcohol is only one carbon off from aldehyde. So remember that smelly, gunky substance that you would preserve the worms and the frogs and whoever in school before you dissected them? Yuck. That's what's in your brain. It's just another carbon. It's not going to make it any sweeter. Okay, so guess what? That starts irritating the brain. So if you've ever really tied one on and you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you can't go back to sleep, <laughs> that's the reason. Okay? Um, exercise is good. Not too close to bed. I don't think it's a great idea. And uh, it should be done in the morning or late afternoon. Uh, but relaxing exercise like yoga, anything uh, Tai Chi, anything that brings you in connection to the universe is a beautiful thing and you'll re and you'll rest food uh can be disrupted before sleep uh large meals are disrupted before sleep there's a lot of people with hypoglycemia that wake up in the middle of the night either in a sweat or with nightmares and really do require a large not a large a protein snack closer to bedtime so that their blood sugar doesn't drop overnight okay but a large meal is probably not a good idea especially if you're experimenting with various spices and so forth and uh, I've been known to do that and don't forget people that chocolate has caffeine I know that's sacrilegious to ladies who uh, like their chocolate at certain times but um, I won't get in your way if you don't get in my way okay <clears throat> okay ensure adequate exposure to natural light it's um, important that you don't spend the whole day inside, especially under fluorescent lights. If you can get natural exposure, you can reset that pineal gland, which is what runs your circadian rhythm. Establish a regular relaxing bedtime routine. Okay? Um, sometimes this is not possible. Try and avoid emotionally upsetting conversations and activities before trying to go to sleep, don't dwell on it or bring your problems to bed. Well, <clears throat> easier said than done, I realize. Another good thing, associate with your bed with sleep or sex. It's not a good idea to use your bed to watch TV, to listen to the radio, to read. Uh, kind of depends. Sometimes um, when I was married, the, bed, the, the big master bedroom was the meeting place for all the kids and wrestling matches and so forth. I don't think I would have given that up for anything. Uh, but it is important that you make sure the sleep environment is pleasant and relaxing. The bed should be comfortable, the room not be too cold or too hot, and certainly not too bright. Now, talking about natural treatments for insomnia, and I'm going to get to your questions because we're going to have plenty of time for questions. Okay. Again, this 
is wholly dependent on what is wrong. If you identify what the issues are, like the one person who had adrenal issues, the one person who had serotonin issues, if it's an adrenal issue, you can use, you know, either high-dose rhodiola and phosphatidylserine. There's lots of things and go after while you're going after the root cause of that. But certain generalities, targeted amino acid therapy to reestablish neurotransmitter balance. If your serotonin was low and that was the only issue, then judicious administration of 5-hydroxytryptophan, you know, in proper quantities would raise serotonin because that's tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan, which becomes serotonin, which becomes an acetyl serotonin, which becomes melatonin, okay? That plus the precursors and cofactors, okay, and you can fix it. Treatment of the underlying causes is real important, such as leaky gut syndrome, adrenal issues, chronic infections like pandas, Lyme, yeast, etc. Uh, reestablishment of the cell wall integrity. You know, what most people, most doctors ignore, and when I, I have the, the honor of treating a lot of people, <clears throat> so I get to read their entire histories and the kind of person that I end up treating which I, I'm completely honored, you, you'd be surprised, that person who's been to many other doctors and, many other, has had, and have had many other treatments without success and they're confused, their practitioners are confused, and, you know, they come to me and say, here, they, you know, I hear the 18-wheeler back up, beep, 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 and all of a sudden there's a box drops in front of me and I have all these records to go through. And I'm going to tell you something, that one of the things that I see on a regular basis is nobody pays attention to the integrity of the cell walls. And I can tell that because they're not treating it. Well, we talk about leaky gut syndrome. Do you think the gut cells are the only things that are leaky? Try your blood-brain barrier. Try your mitochondria, which has a double membrane, and they're all phospholipid bilayers. So reestablishment of the cell wall integrity will start the body healing because that's one of the major reasons it gets sick because the cells won't work correctly. Histamine goes in, rips open the cells, or other kinds of damage happen to the cells, and they can't repair themselves because they don't have phospholipids. We talked a while ago about high-dose vitamin C. Vitamin C is one of the better adaptogens that we have available to us. Where some B vitamins and other vitamins get very targeted on where they go, vitamin C is kind of a jack-of-all-trades and acts as an adaptogen, sort of like a buffer. So it's needed. The adrenal gland uses it. It can be used as an antioxidant. It can be used as a uh, killer of various uh, dysbioses and so forth. The trick with vitamin C, of course, is getting enough in, okay? And that's why we're constantly pushing the liposomal vitamin C because it's almost like getting an intravenous dose the regular vitamin C, you're only absorbing 15, 25%, whereas the phospholipid form or the liposomal vitamin C, you're getting 95 or 100%, plus you're getting the phospholipids that you need to heal the cell wall. Essential oils for energetic balancing. Okay, essential oils are excellent uh, for various conditions, okay, and especially for those who have very... I like to call tender nervous systems. Nervous systems that are so upregulated that they can't handle uh, the full doses of other types of treatment. The essential oils have been a lifesaver. Mitochondrial support. Okay, the mitochondria 
are often the you know poor cousin that has been ignored but that's what creates your and that's what creates your energy and we talked a little bit about it in the past couple of episodes how important it is and why it's been ignored because the uh, medical establishment and other researchers have not researched it well enough or aren't, aren't cognizant of the fact that we can do something very significant for mitochondria at this at this stage of the game and of course um, assessment of sleep hygiene as we spoke of simply put people your healthcare practitioner should look at you as the individual that you are not as the insomnia patient but look at you as a whole person and treat what they find wrong and it may sound trite but a lot of healthcare practitioners for good or for bad for on purpose or not are beating around the bush and people continue to suffer so as you know what we do here at the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine is exactly that we're pioneering the bioindividualized medicine concept which is looking at you in a true holistic manner we're expert in re- discovering the root causes of insomnia and have the capability of treating not only the root causes but the downstream effects as well and um, right now we're very unique because there's only a few practitioners that think the way we do but we're starting to teach other people and uh, it takes time and a commitment of time for your healthcare practitioner and you to look at your condition in a genuine genuinely holistic manner and that includes the areas of epigenetics neuroendoimmunology acquired mitochondrial dysfunction and cell wall integrity and treat them by intention on the last page you see how you can contact us because you know if you uh, if you had a, a question or you wanted to um, you know have a short get acquainted session to see if we can help you the contact information is right there okay I always urge people to schedule a 15-minute uh, get acquainted session over the phone because in that time we can get a feel for what's going on with you you can get a feel for us and if it's a good fit things work well okay instead of you spending lots and lots of money and you know not getting what you're looking for um, you know something that was 22 slides and I blew through that in less than 40 minutes so <laughs> I would really like you guys to ask some questions this but somebody's been waiting here for 36 minutes so let me see if they are still on the phone either caller from the 905 area Cody you still there yes I am well howdy thank you for being so patient I'm just what can wondering I, what can I answer for you what sort of a hormonal panel would you requisition for people with insomnia Uh, that would be it's a good question it would depend very much on the person's history Uh, you know if you were going to just cast a net out and uh, you could do testosterone progesterone the three what I like to call three estrogen sisters Um, but usually in a uh, while I'm taking a history I'll get a feel for where the difficulties are and where one must be a little bit more specific Uh, when you do a history it's important that you read all the lab work that has already been done and more than just more than or inclusive of listening to the entire story from day one forward uh, get an assessment for what has been helping what hasn't been helping uh, that will I call that following crumbs and when I follow those crumbs I usually can figure out what's going on and if I need help we can target the lab work 
uh, to the area of concern. I don't like generalized, um, there's some practitioner you go to see, you end up spending two and $3,000 on lab work before you ever see them. And in my estimation, that's like throwing you know what against the wall and staying, seeing what sticks. Okay, um, and that's why I'm constantly yelling history, 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 because that will help you target where the problems are, and the lab values should confirm a diagnosis or help with your differential rather than make the diagnosis for you. I'm not, I'm not trying to beat around the bush, but that's the reality of the situation. No, I totally understand. I just thought if there was something specific about it. Well, just remember, progesterone is very, very much related to GABA. Okay, estrogen is very much related to serotonin. Uh, if the woman is estrogen dominant, that can be an answer right there. You'll see that in the genes. Okay, if she's got PCOS or a lot of PMS, you can almost treat estrogen dominance on a presumptive basis. Okay, uh, um, usually by the time they see me, they've had some kind of hormonal uh, panel. And remember, the hormones can be adrenal and thyroid hormones also. Okay, there's not, there's not a hormone for sleep disorders. Uh, it is, it's too much of a spectrum disorder. A lot of things can cause sleep disturbance. And um, in a case, do you have a specific example that you want me to run through? Not really, but I'm sort of suspecting that thyroid issues sort of predispose to the other ones. There you go. Always remember that you have a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, okay? That you also have a hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis and a hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So the gonads, the adrenals, and the thyroid share the same axis. So when one goes off, the rest of them go off. And that's how you have to think about balance. It's like uh, when I treat a menopausal woman. Menopause is a normal phenomena. I know, I know, I hope nobody's outside with a stick. But... Um, it's a normal phenomenon. What takes over the creation of the sex hormones as the female gonads from 35 on start becoming quiescent? The adrenal gland and its a production of dehydroxyepiandosterone. Okay, that will become the female sex hormone. So a lot of times I'm treating an adrenal problem instead of treating the menopause with uh, hormones. And that's the proper way to treat it because guess what? That's where the problem is. That's how I'm seeing it. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> Can I answer no, anything else for you? No, just to get the testing done. be happy to help you if you like. You know, I can't treat Thank over you the phone, very obviously, much, over, the, uh, over the radio, but happy to answer any other questions. Just give me a call, okay? Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, this person. Hello. And how are you this fine evening? This is Dr. Armine. I'm good, thank you. What can I answer for you, dear? Um, what do you do with um, people who have so-called congenital adrenal hyperplasia late onset? Can, can you um, say it again, have please, had Congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Okay. Um, specifically, the 11 dihydroxycortisol gene, and it doesn't break. I guess it does, that part of the cortisol pathway doesn't work, um, but it's mm -hmm. late onset, postmenopausal, and all of a sudden, what you just said makes sense because all of a sudden, women that all of a sudden have this, their 
dihydroxycortisol is sky high with all the male androgens. So, you know, they want to give me hydrocortisone or um, prednisone or little things of dexamethasone, and I keep reacting. Mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. I've also had two head concussions, so I know they've kind of been in play all my life. So where does and this come into play have... with treating it? Well, your your point is very, very well taken. Your your, your question is an excellent one, and it's a complicated one, but uh, let me... Um, let me tell you how I would think about it since you've obviously had a, a very good endocrinological workup, okay? Um, mm-hmm. The way I tend to think about things when they're late onset is I start going backwards and I start seeing what set things off, okay? What cascaded, what snowball that ended up in what's happening now? Okay, and that's where you find the answers, in my opinion. If you go backwards in that person's life and you and you start seeing, you know, I'm just going to make some stuff up, okay? Uh, yeast infections with topped off by parasitic infections, topped off by, you know, uh, being flocked by, you know, uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, and you start seeing a pattern of dysfunction, especially immune dysfunction, Okay, you're not going to change that by throwing hydrocortisone at it. You may treat it acutely. You know, certainly you don't want the person to be in um, in danger if their their life is in danger. You have to treat things acutely with medications. But uh, from my point of view, I do. I'll go backwards and say, okay, what started up regulating this lady's system? Okay, because the end result was an expression of a genetic predisposition. Right. Okay, you you were predisposed to this, but something had to set it off. And it wasn't a thing. It was a series of things over time. Otherwise, it would have happened very early in your life. Or it would have happened you know, like when you popped out of the womb because it's congenital. So if we go backwards and start correcting things that we found wrong that would have reasonably led to this immune upregulation that eventually became an immune dysregulation and then set this in motion, we'd have our best chance to reverse what happened. Now, I realize I'm speaking a bit generally because I'm not looking at all the numbers and so forth and so on, but that's the way mm-hmm. I would look at it. And that would be the only, that would be the thing that you weren't being afforded. Okay, the medical people will treat what they find wrong with their armamentarium. Okay, right. so they're going to be looking at you with the various steroids. And sometimes that's necessary, but even when you're taking steroids or you're taking psychotropic medicines, there's ways of minimizing those things. Okay, I have mm-hmm. lots of psychiatrists refer to me, and what I do is balance the neurotransmitters to the best of my ability and then let the psychiatrist who's a psychopharmacologist, you know, slowly decrease the medications the person is on. And guess what? You know, side effects are based on dose. So a lot of times people can be taken off certain medicines because they were put on it for the side effects of other medicines, and there's nothing like having somebody, sometimes it takes about a year, you know, coming in with six or seven medicines and feeling horrible and being maintained on one or two medicines, you know, successfully, and then they can re, re you know, enter life. So it's kind of your point of view, uh, but that's the way I would go about it, and that's, you know, insomnia is a side effect, but 
I'd be looking for the set of things that started the ball rolling and what that snowball picked up along the way. Well, my daughter, who's only 19, has also been diagnosed with it, and they put her on dexamethasone, which, very, I mean, as you know, it's a very, very, very small amount. Yeah. And now all of her androgens have dropped, her acne's gone away, the hair has gone away. And um, my concern is I know that some late onsets can be treated, and then they, well, as you just said, back off to see if the body mm-hmm. can now right. re-regulate. So trying to get an endocrinologist to do that is a whole other story. Well, um, endocrinologists are their, are their own brand of people. And I use that term loosely. Right. Um, like yes. in, in an older person, like in our age group, I would be looking in the manner that I, that I spoke. Okay, and a younger person who is exhibiting, obviously, for a while, you know, it may be just a matter of resetting, okay? okay. Uh, I'd still do, if someone asked my opinion, my contribution to the case would be to look for everything that I could possibly work with that would mm-hmm. be increasing inflammation and that you know i i wouldn't promise anybody that i could fix them but i would say hey look you know this is what i do and what i do well and Mm. i know that that has a lot large contribution to everything and sometimes it may not sometimes you know they get reset but how about later on the tendency is still there okay um and if you learn that and I'm, I'm going to sound stupid now, I, I learned that gluten and dairy are a problem that really creates a lot of immune upregulation. If you knew that, mm-hmm. you wouldn't do it because that would lead eventually to you getting this thing back. Okay? Yeah, People well, she's who already right... gluten-free and all that. Good. I mean, but like I said, she's that's the way I would think about it. And you know yeah. something that's okay. going to serve her in the long term, you know? Just yeah. think, of it, think about this. No one can cure a migraine. Okay, you can right. treat a migraine, but you can't cure it. The only way to cure a migraine is to discover and control all the triggering mechanisms. And mm. then you effectively have cured the migraine. But the migraineous tendency is always there. So you put enough stress and enough pressure into that person's body, it will follow that pathway again. So the right. more that you know, the better you can live, the better you live, the more you have a feeling for, hey, this is going to make me... You know, I shouldn't be doing this because it's going to start getting me inflamed and then that's going to come back, okay? Right, So, right. you know, I hate to say it, but I call, I call it common sense. And, you know, remember, the medical guys are not stupid. They, you know, they do some good work. I think they do some dumb things at times, but so do I, I guess. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so do we all. Uh, real quick also, um, do you find people who have had, had concussions that they have to stay on whether it's natural or, you know, you're balancing your amino acids or whatever, um, is that usually the cure or and is it something as we've gotten older that with the head concussions in our lives, because I know they're cumulative, um, yes, they are. is it something that can help basically balance well, the body again? I'm glad you answered that, I'm glad you, um, you asked that question because I've recently had a, um, a few head injury cases and... Um, the one that was the most uh, prominent was a, a young gentleman, I think he was 19, um, typical, typical head injury. And um, in my office, and, and this is a very unusual thing, I was talking with him and his mom, and I gave him 
3,000 milligrams of liposomal vitamin C, and I just kind of handed it to him some water to drink it. He said, what is it? I said, just drink it. I'll smack you. You okay? <laughs> About 10 minutes later, he said, you know something? I'm feeling better. And I said, hmm. ah. He said, it's got to be placebo. I said, no, no, it's not placebo because you didn't know what I was about to do, okay? Now, I started him on high doses of liposomal vitamin C, which was not just the vitamin C, but those phospholipids I was talking about. Because in my history, I realized that nobody had given him anything to help um, heal his cells, okay? Right. Remember, the brain cells are working. They're just not working at peak efficiency. And I will tell you this because I have proof. The... Uh, person who referred him to me did a QEEG and then a month later did another QEEG after I was treating him and there was a vast 75% improvement in the EEG okay and the wow. kid showed con consumerate improvement in his uh, mentation and moods and so forth so mm -hmm. you know something it's worth I know head injuries are tough trust me I, I have a complete mm -hmm. my heart my heart aches for them but it is worth a look-see it's worth mm -hmm. a trial of some of the crazy things that I know to do, okay, because all I'm really doing is giving that body back its ability and the, and the material to build itself again. Does it always happen yeah. like I just said? No, that was an anomaly, okay? It was a nice anomaly. I felt pretty good about it, okay, but mm -hmm. the fact is that this boy, I can, I can now look at him and say, okay, you're going to have a life, okay? And I've, I've seen him a couple of times since, and he's doing phenomenally in college, Okay, mm -hmm. but uh, you know the body is simply intricate and intricately simple, and until the day you die, it will constantly try and heal itself. So right. let's not argue the fact, and let's be let's have a little common sense, and give it what we know it needs to heal. And ergo, the bioindividualized medicine paradigm. We look at all these things. All the things I look at are let's get rid of inflammation, let's heal the cells, let's make sure the mitochondria are working, and healing it by intention. By intention means we absolutely look at it and we just didn't do it because, you know, it was an accident. Okay, and these are the things that over time, because I've been a healthcare provider for 37 years, that I've seen not being handled. And that goes for head injuries and everything else. You know, there's very little absolute destruction in there. There can be some scar tissue, some cicatrix, you know, that kind of stuff that can cause problems. But there's very little absolute destruction in there. There's lack of function, lack of perfusion. That's why hyperbaric therapy works, okay? And you can mm -hmm. support that with, you know, giving the body what it needs to heal, especially if you can cross it through the blood-brain barrier. Right. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. You're most I mean. welcome. Thank you for your question. Take mm -hmm. care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Guys, we've got about five minutes left. Anybody would like to ask a question? I'm looking at the chat room here, and I'm seeing a lot of people with big smiles on their faces. You didn't know I could see it, did you? <laughs> so here's the bottom line is that regardless of what the disease entity, if you want to call it a disease entity, whatever the issue is, okay, what we're trying to do and what we're being very successful at is getting back to basics and going to try and trying to get the body to heal itself by giving it what it needs to heal and taking away what has been blocking the healing. And that's what the genetics are about. They give us probabilities. Okay, that's why we look at the... Um, 
the uh, neurotransmitters and the immune system and the hormones because those organs have receptors for the other system's organs and they're constantly chattering to one another. So we know that if one's off, the rest of them are going to be off. Okay, with a good knowledge of, you know, uh, physiology, you can, you know, pretty well figure out what somebody needs. Okay, and then the most important thing, aside from knowing about, you know, the cell wall and uh, mitochondria and so forth, is to work with somebody who is going to listen okay, who is going to follow up, okay, I know I've been accused of uh, being late on things and so forth, but it's because, you know, um, unfortunately, in case anybody's not, doesn't realize that I am human, uh, although some people, my ex-wife would probably argue that point, um, but, you know, that's why we're going to, that's why we're trying to teach other healthcare providers and lay people about this because, guess what, you guys are smart, okay, and you should demand this level of care, so, um, yeah, okay, it's three minutes. Has anybody got a question out there? Okay, you know, the, problem, the biggest problem with me sitting in here in this room by myself is I get no feedback. <laughs> okay, this is what I'm going to ask of you. Okay, I would like to get some emails of subjects you would like to hear about. Okay, I have several things that, you know, I like to talk about, but... I would like you to tell me what you would like me to talk about or if you have a suggestion of who you would like to have on the show, okay, whether that be a particular physician or a group, uh, you know, concerning a, a particular condition, I would, I would adore hosting that, okay? And remember that if you have a question, if you think that or have a question of whether I can help you or Sean can help you, just give us, just contact us. We'll schedule you for a uh, complimentary 15-minute get acquainted phone session, so you can ask your questions, and I can, or we can tell you what we can, what we could think about doing. Okay, my contact information is on the last page. Okay, or on my website, as is Sean's. Well, if nobody has any other questions, I think I'm going to sign off for the night. I really appreciate your support. Okay, I'd really love to hear your commentary. Good, bad, and ugly. Don't feel, don't be afraid to yell at me. I'm Sicilian. I might come back after you, but it's okay. All right, we can still say friends. But uh, please, uh, there's a world out there suffering. Okay, and, and we have an opportunity to help that, to really make a difference from the grassroots and from the higher up. So give me a hand. Work with me, okay? Let's, let's get this word out. Let's make sure that the people who are suffering or don't have to, you know, know that they have an advocate, okay? And that advocate is you and I, okay? So listen, see you guys next week. I'm sorry for the mix-up yesterday, but we had a snowstorm. We're waiting for another one tonight. Hopefully next Monday we'll just start up again, okay, unless we get another blizzard, okay? You guys have a good night. This nice British lady is trying to tell me it's almost time to go. Good night, everyone. God bless.